good morning. It's uh, a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, this church holds a, a special place in my own heart, uh, not just because my brother is the pastor here. Uh, some of you will know I've been a member of this church two times in the past. Uh, gone through the membership class and everything, uh, and uh, this church has shown much kindness to myself, to my family, uh, for many, many years. And uh, it's just a, a delight to be able to be with you. I have taught Sunday school here once before, but this is the first time I've had the privilege of preaching to you. I also bring to you greetings from Grace Reform Baptist Church in Brunswick, Maine. We pray for you and uh, appreciate your um, partnership in the gospel with us, even across uh, the entirety of the United States. You don't get much further apart from one another within the continental U.S. So greetings from Grace Reformed Baptist Church. If you'll take your copy of the scriptures, please open to the Gospel of John chapter 14. John chapter 14, and I will be reading verses 5 through 11. We're jumping a little bit into the middle of a narrative here. I don't think it will be too difficult for us to pick up um, the flow of thought. John chapter 14, verses 5 through 11. Let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Pray with me, please. Our Father in heaven, as we come before your word, we ask that you would give us hearts that are receptive, that we might receive with meekness the word which you give to us today. Lord, those who remain in their sin, we ask that you would break in upon their hearts this morning, that they might know for the first time your grace in their lives. And for those who already are following the Lord Jesus, may we see him afresh this morning once again be stirred to love, to trust, and to worship our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some places in the Bible where you have two ideas closely together that would almost seem to be contradictory. Of course, they aren't a, actually a contradiction, but there can be a perceived tension on the surface of the words. For instance... We get this when the Bible tells us that we are strong when we are weak. That initially seems like it would be counterintuitive. How can something be strong when it's weak? And of course, we know 
The point is that we have no strength in ourselves, and so it is when we understand our weakness and look to the Lord that we are strong in him. Another example of this perceived tension would be a passage like Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. How do you have an image of something that's invisible? Well, it's teaching us that in Jesus, God, who is invisible, is revealed to us in some way. We get something similar to this in the hymn we just sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. In the second verse, we sang, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Do you hear the the tension in those words? In the veiling, in the covering, the hiding, the obscuring of the Son when he became flesh. He nevertheless enables us to see the Godhead. Usually when you put a veil over something, it makes it harder to see. And yet here, there's a sense in which the opposite happens. When God the Son takes on flesh, he causes us to see and to understand God better. Now this is very strange, isn't it? And we have to be very careful. There are many errors that we could fall into as we consider this. But how could it be that when Jesus, when the Son of God takes on a nature that is not divine, it somehow helps us to understand that which is divine? That should be odd to us. Well, that's... The task we have set for ourselves today is to try to understand how it is that in the coming of the Lord Jesus as a man, God is revealed to us. And our primary text is what we've just read from John chapter 14, verses 5 through 11. Here we read this famous passage in which Jesus tells his disciples that he is the way, the truth, and the life, which essentially is saying he is the way because he is the truth and the life. Right? Because he is the truth, because he is the life, therefore he is the way and the only way to the Father. Jesus goes on to tell his disciples that if they had fully known him, then they would know the Father as well. Philip, one of the disciples, is perplexed by this, and he, he makes this request. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. It seems like an innocent enough question, and yet Jesus shows that Philip's question reveals significant ignorance on his part. He responds, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? For three years, Jesus has been with his disciples, teaching them, showing them who he is. These are things that they should have known by now, but they do not. And Jesus draws particular attention to something they should have known. It is the deep, intimate union between God the Father and God the Son. Four or five times in this passage, Jesus draws attention to this union. In verse 7, Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. In verse 9, he says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In verse 10, he says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And then later in the verse he says, the Father who dwells in me does his works. In verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. 
This theme of the union of the Father and the Son is one of the central themes of the entire Gospel of John. It's a critical truth to Christianity. It is one of those mysteries that comes up in the Christmas season. How the one who is God and who is so intimately God that he is with the Father. Remember John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This one took on a real human nature. So this is what we want to do, is to think about how Jesus Christ, the God-man, reveals the Father to us. We have uh, four um, items on the outline Four main points. First, we'll consider God incarnate. Secondly, God revealed. Third, God unseen. And fourth, God believed. The first two of those speak of God's actions. God becomes incarnate and God reveals himself. And the second two speak of our response. We may fail to see God or we may believe in him. Let's begin then with God incarnate, the incarnation of the Son of God. Of course, this is the background to the whole conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. Here we have Jesus, the man who is also the Son of God. From eternity, God the Son has existed with the Father and with the Spirit, equal in power and in glory with them. But in time, in the fullness of time, the Son took on another nature, a human nature, becoming man when he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And now this one, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, continues to have two distinct natures in one person forever. He is true God and true man. Perhaps you could say it this way, no one was ever more God than he, and no one was ever more human than he in his incarnation. Everything that belongs to deity is his, and everything that belongs to humanity is his in the incarnation. One of the critical components to this incarnational theology is that his divine nature was not changed in the slightest by the incarnation. In fact, this was the point of the uh, explanatory remark that Brother George was uh, making about Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Nothing about his divinity was altered when he became man. It seems to me this is one of the most common ways that Christians today make mistakes with this doctrine. But we confess that the human nature did not change his divine nature and his divine nature does not distort or alter his human nature. Perhaps the most famous statement of this comes in the Chalcedonian Creed of 451. Let me read just a portion of that creed to you. It says, We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. Those 
last four words string, strung together describe what the union of the two natures is not. Right? It says, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. You could think of these words in pairs. First, we have inconfusedly and unchangeably. Inconfusedly means that the two natures are not somehow mixed up with one another. They are not melded into one single new nature. They remain distinct. And unchangeably means that the union of the divine nature and the human nature does not cause any change in either of the natures. The human nature doesn't become a superhuman nature. It's just a human nature. And the divine nature does not become a watered-down divine nature, as though he is somehow less of a god than he was before. And then the other two words, indivisibly and inseparably, these two words are both showing that these natures are truly united in such a way that we cannot treat Jesus as though there are two people living inside of him. He is one person, and this one person possesses two natures at the same time in such a way that they are not separated from each other and no one can divide them as though you could point at Jesus and say, oh, there's the human part and there's the divine part. We cannot speak in these ways. And these four words provide the guardrails for how to talk about the union of the two natures in Jesus. It's sort of saying, these are the lines you can't cross. As long as you don't cross these lines, you're doing okay. But we must fiercely hold to the truth that Jesus possessed true deity and true humanity without either of these natures being altered by the other. He is very God of very God and very man of very man. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. The one standing before the disciples, teaching them in John 14, is the God-man. And it is only as the God-man that he can say the things that he says here. It is only one who is both truly God and truly man who can reveal the Father to us as he says he does. So let's move into that now and consider God revealed. Jesus teaches the disciples here that he reveals the Father to them. Now, Philip has asked for a special revelation of the Father, right? Something he could see, something he could experience. Jesus tells him, look, if you have seen me, then you have seen the Father as well. Not because they're the same person. It's not as though the Father becomes the Son when he takes on flesh. That's another heresy. But because, as Jesus says in verse 10, the Father is in him and he is in the Father, now, I said earlier that this union of the Father and the Son is one of the central themes of the Gospel of John. It goes all the way back to chapter 1. In John chapter 1, verse 14, says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then just a couple of verses later, verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So this goes all the way back to the first chapter, how this one who has become, who has taken on flesh, shows to us the Father. But we need to ask the question, what does it mean 
that Jesus makes the Father known. What does that mean? Or how does Jesus make the Father known? This, again, is where we have to avoid many errors, in particular the error of of seeing things in the humanity of Jesus and thinking that that tells us something about God. I read one commentary on this verse. I was really uncomfortable with what it said. It was describing different events in the life of Jesus, especially ones where Jesus displays an emotional response to something. And on the basis of of this verse, it said, now we know what God is like because we see Jesus acting and responding in these kinds of ways. I was disheartened by this commentary. It's in a series calling itself a Reformed Commentary Series. But there's an inherent problem with this. It's taking something about Jesus and his humanity and trying to read that back into God. And that's really problematic because God is not like us. We are created in his image and we are called to be like him, but the Bible never that I'm aware of takes something in man and reads it back into God. In fact, the people of Israel are rebuked for this kind of thinking. In Psalm 50, verse 21, God says to them, You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. We can't look at man and think that's what God is like. And so we can't do that in the life of the Lord Jesus. We can't say this is something that happens in his humanity, and therefore that's what divinity is like. We can't do that. So how then do we understand this? How does Jesus reveal the Father? Well, if we went back to John chapter 1, it helps us to see that what reveals the Father is the mission that the Son has come to carry out. The mission that the Son has come to carry out. When we see that Jesus is here to carry out the mission that the Father has sent him on, that's what reveals the Father to us. It's not that when we see Jesus weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, we're supposed to say that's what God is like. Rather, we are meant to see that the Father has made a way that lost sinners can be redeemed through the sending of the Son. And that's a much more wonderful message, isn't it? You'll see, I hope, how this flows right out of what Jesus is teaching in John 14 and verse 6. It's a very well-known verse among Christians. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's talking about his mission, isn't he? The very thing we've just been discussing about how we may come to the Father because Jesus was sent to make a way for us to come to the Father. The only way. And this is how Jesus, the God-man, is made known to us. By revealing his redemptive purposes for sinners like us. This is how he reveals the Father to us. So we've considered God incarnate. We gave a a simple or a basic incarnational theology. We've considered God as 
He is revealed in the mission of Jesus. But let's move on now to wrestle with the fact that Philip asks to see the Father, meaning Philip believes that he has not seen the Father. Philip thinks he has not seen the Father. Now, the revelation about the Father has been right in front of him for three years in the Lord Jesus. And Philip, and presumably the other disciples as well, they seem to have missed it. Which goes to show that just because something is revealed doesn't mean people will receive it or understand it. And there are some important practical elements to this. First, consider with me the sad truth that many refuse to believe. Many refuse to see that which is right in front of them. Jesus ministered among many people. Crowds saw him. They heard him teach. They witnessed his miracles. And yet at the end of his ministry, there was only a handful who stuck with him. I've always drawn, as a pastor, I've always drawn some comfort from this. Some churches and pastors today want to measure their ministry by their numbers. How many people came to our church this year? How many people have we baptized this year? You know, if Jesus was measured by those kinds of standards, his ministry would be considered poor, if not a failure. But we dare not say that about the Lord Jesus. And therefore, we, we know that the standard is wrong. It is not numbers that we use to evaluate one's ministry. Nevertheless, it's, it's, it's really sad. It's distressing to see when people are exposed to the truth, and yet they will not receive it. Perhaps even this past week or the week ahead, you will spend time with family members, and you have spoken to them of the Lord Jesus Christ, And they seem to refuse to understand. They seem to refuse to believe. This happened even in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Back in John chapter 6, Jesus teaches that he is the bread of life. The people struggle to understand what he's saying. It sounded crazy to them. It says that many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. We should not be surprised when many hear us as we give witness to the truth and yet they turn away refusing to believe. But there's another practical lesson here that's found in Philip's misguided question. Again in verse 8 he says, Lord show us the Father and it is enough for us. Again it seems like a simple enough request but it really does display his ignorance. Jesus rebukes him for it, saying he ought to know better if he's seen Jesus than he has seen the Father. But I think there's more to this than just ignorance on Philip's part. In fact, two more things. The first, it seems that Philip wants something flashy. Philip wants something flashy. He wants something exciting and something tangible. Philip's request sounds an awful lot like what what, uh, Moses asked of God in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. He's up on Mount Sinai. He says to the Lord, show me your glory. 
And God passes by Moses in such a way that he sees sort of the back of God's glory. And it seems like Philip is trying to ask for something like that as well. The language is very similar. It seems that Philip had not yet learned the lesson of John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, Philip's question shows that he thinks that glory comes in a more exciting and more tangible way. And isn't this our problem so often? We want glory, but we want it to come in some kind of grand display rather than listening to the ways in which God has told us he is revealing his glory. I believe that one of the major failings of the evangelical church today is their inability to be content with the simple testimony of God's word and the simple expressions of God's grace that are found in things like the preaching of the word, the sacraments, and the gathered worship of his people. Many churches are in search of the latest fad, the new flashy thing that will really draw people to Christianity. But of course, as the saying goes, the thing you win them with is the thing you win them to. If you bring people in with some flashy social event, then guess what they're going to want? Flashy social events. Not the ordinary and seemingly boring acts of quietly and thoughtfully listening to a sermon and humbly receiving the Lord's Supper and responding to these things in joyful song and prayer. But isn't it true that we are so much like Philip? How easily we want something else and something more, which really means that we want something more than Christ. Isn't that what Philip says, right? Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus says, I'm right here. I am showing you the Father. Philip wanted more. When we want more than what Christ has given us, aren't we saying we want more than Christ? That Christ himself is not enough for us? Do we dare say that? Do we really want something more than a humble man born in Bethlehem? Something more than a righteous life of persecution? and something more than the atoning death on the cross. Friends, what else is there? What else is there? This is where we see the glory of God. It's in a little baby. It's in an obedient man. It's in a dying savior. It's in this one who came to carry out the mission that the father gave to him. This is where we see the glory of God. Anything else that we might ask for is asking for more than Christ himself. The second problem with Philip's question is that he's setting up his own criteria for belief. Again, listen to what he says. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough. You hear that? And it is enough. As though he's saying, Jesus, I'm going to tell you what I need 
and then you are obligated to give me the thing that I told you I need in order for me to believe. He's dictating to Jesus the information or the experience that he needs to have in order to believe. Friends, God tells us exactly what we need to hear, and it is our duty to believe, not to try to tell him that we need something else. It is not for us to set up a fleece for God, to test him, to prove what he says. Our job is to receive his word in humble faith. And so I hope you see Philip's question really is problematic. It's not just a matter of ignorance, as though he's failed to realize that Jesus shows the Father, but there are these other issues wrapped up in it as well. A desire for an experience, an inability to be content with the ways in which God reveals his glory. But there's another side to this interaction, and I really love this. Isn't it interesting that while Philip seems to think that he doesn't know the Father, Jesus comes right back at him and basically says, yes, you do know the Father. He didn't realize, or he couldn't articulate, that in knowing Jesus, he knew the Father, but he really did. At the end of verse 7, Jesus says to the disciples, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Have you ever gone looking for your keys? You're searching all around the house. You can't seem to find them, and it turned out you were holding them the whole time. Or you're looking for your glasses, and you're actually wearing them, right? There's something like this that's happening in Philip's question. He thinks he hasn't seen the Father, but he has. In an odd way, maybe this is a, a strange application of this, but there are times when we know more than we give ourselves credit for. That's what Jesus tells Philip. And there's some real comfort in this, isn't there? J.C. Ryle makes this point. Let me read some of his comments. He said, we should mark in these verses how much better Jesus speaks of believers than they speak of themselves. He goes on to say, the plain truth is that all believers are apt to undervalue the work of the Spirit in their own souls and to fancy they know nothing because they do not know everything. Many true Christians are thought more of in heaven while they live than they think of themselves and will find it out to their surprise at the last day. I really love this. He's saying that we we often don't realize things that are true of us and things that we know. And there's a sense in which in Jesus, in heaven, Jesus evaluates us better than we evaluate ourselves, and on the day of judgment, we will be pleasantly surprised at what the Lord has to say to us. Doesn't Jesus himself teach this in Matthew 25? 
He says on the last day he will welcome his people into the kingdom because they've acted in righteousness and mercy. They've helped those who are in need. And in verse 37, he says, the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? You get the sense here we have these, as it were, people coming to the gates of heaven and Jesus is welcoming some in and, and people are going, well, on what, why are you bringing us in? We, we don't deserve this. And Jesus will tell them, inasmuch as you did these things to the least of these, my people, you've done it for me. There are some ways in which Jesus has a higher view of us than we have of ourselves. How many of us struggle with feeling our unworthiness? How many of us feel weighed down by our guilt and feel unfit for heaven? There will be some, perhaps many, who will come to the gates of heaven with sadness in their hearts will feel that they surely don't belong. And Christ will say, welcome in. Of course, the way this works out is a question of who are we looking to? Where are we looking for our hope and for our confidence? If we are only looking at ourselves, of course we will feel unworthy and unfit for heaven. There is not a single person in this room who is worthy of heaven. Not a single person. Every one of us is unfit. That's not how we get into heaven. We enter heaven only through the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in him that we may have hope and confidence and joy. In him we may enter in and expect to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And some of us will scratch our heads and say, what? that's not me. I'll say, I know, but the Lord Jesus has taken your place. And in him you are a good and faithful servant. You see, if we have Jesus and if we know him, then we have more than we realize. And we can take heart in this. Our sin will drive us to discouragement. You perhaps know this in your own life. You look within and you are discouraged. You say, I'm such a wicked person. I can't seem to get over these sins that I've been wrestling with for 40 years. Sometimes in the midst of that discouragement, we can begin to say things that just are not true. Again, let me quote from J.C. Ryle. He says this verse, and here he's referring to verse 5. He says this verse shows how foolishly a disciple may talk under the influence of despondency. We must not judge disciples too sharply for words spoken under deep distress when the passions and affections are much stirred, the tongue often runs away with a man, and like Job, he speaks unadvisedly. There are times in our discouragement when we look within that we begin to say things that just aren't true. And this can be applied either to ourselves or to someone else that we are interacting with. We need to be on guard 
against letting our hearts run away into falsehood in a moment of discouragement by saying things that are not true of ourselves. And we need to be careful about judging someone else too sharply by some, uh, because of something they say when they are discouraged. Jesus overcomes all of our sins. Let us be encouraged and bring this to our mind and to the mind of others as often as we can. Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior. Well, as we've worked through our passage today, we've thought about God incarnate, how the Son of God took on flesh. We saw, secondly, how God the Son, as he became incarnate, reveals to us the Father, showing this mission of redemption that he has been sent on. We third considered the unbelief or the, the way that, that some will, will receive the revelation but will not see it. They will not believe it. But fourth, let's consider what it is to believe in God. Again, Philip thinks he doesn't know the Father, and Jesus graciously redirects him to the truths that have been right in front of him, but that he has not yet fully grasped. And this brings us back to the place where the passage, where we began the passage in verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now we've, we've covered many points today. Some that are areas of theology that can get quite deep very quickly. We've addressed some practical concerns. But what I want you to see most of all is how simple this message is. How simple this message is. We don't need anything flashy. We don't need anything innovative. We don't need anything new. We don't need experiences. We don't need sensory stimulation. We don't need great religious feelings. All we need is Christ, the God-man. He is the way, and he is the only way. There is no other way to the Father except through him. Please, do not make your own heart to be the way to heaven. Don't think that being a good enough person in your heart will get you to heaven. Because it won't. And those of you who trust in Christ, you must also beware, do not think that the sinfulness in your heart can somehow undo the work of Christ on your behalf. It cannot. There is only one way to heaven. Your heart doesn't get you there, and therefore it's not your heart that can pull you away from there either. Jesus must be the way, or none of us will make it to the Father. And the good news is that Jesus is a gracious and merciful Savior. He is gentle and kind. He is generous and loving. He calls all to come to him and find rest for their souls. Once again, I quote J.C. Ryle. 
says, he that casts his soul on Christ has an almighty friend, a friend who is one with the Father and very God. That one who is with the Father, the Father is in him and he is in the Father. He is our friend, an almighty friend, one who is powerful to save us. This very day, you do not need to look any further than this. Jesus Christ, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, he comes to make the Father known to us as he carries out the great mission of redemption. He was born, he lived a righteous life, he died an atoning death, he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, there he ever lives to make intercession for us. And we await the day when he returns to bring his kingdom to its fullness. This, this one, the God-man, calls you to trust him today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Truly, there is no other way. It cannot be ourselves. But the Lord Jesus has done everything that is needed. And we thank you for this gift of grace. Oh Lord, would you please grow within us richer and deeper love for Jesus Christ a trust in him that grows day by day. And may it be our delight to worship him, to be with his people, to serve him all our days. Fill us with hope for the day when we shall see him and then be made like him, for we shall see him as he is. And grant us perseverance through many trials and difficulties that we may face. For those who are discouraged, would you lift up their hearts, lift up their countenance as they look to you, they look to Christ, as they recall the promises that he has made. And those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, O oh Lord, would you have mercy on them? Save them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.